Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. In today's program. We will ask whether mainland Chinese money is compromising the independence and quality of higher education in Australia. Our guests are James Liebold, a China politics expert from La Trobe University, Paul McGregor, a historian and former curator of the Museum of Chinese Australian History, and via Skype we're joined by Louise Edwards, a historian of modern China at the University of New South Wales. She's also the former director of the then China Research Centre at the University of Technology, Sydney. The predecessor to the Australia-China Relations Institute. Welcome to the program, James. To start with you,、uh, there's many things we could talk about in terms of mainland Chinese money influencing higher education in Australia. Mainland Chinese students make up the majority of、uh, overseas students in Australia. There are about 12 Confucius Institutes fully funded by the Chinese government. But I think in today's program we'd like to focus on two new centres that have opened in the last two years with four million dollars in funding from a Chinese philanthropist. In particular,、um, you've done a lot of work on ACRI, the Australia-China Relations Institute. What do you see as some of the issues about funding for these centres? Well, I think the back. Drop Graham is、um, the changing nature of、uh, funding for the tertiary education sector in Australia. So over the last、uh, couple decades, we've seen a decrease in federal funding.、Uh, universities have been encouraged to be far more entrepreneurial in how they go about、um, funding themselves, and at the same time, you have an influx of、uh, new money coming in from mainly mainland Chinese donors, and in this. Creates the potential for a kind of、uh, a conflict of、uh, interest and in the taking of money that、uh, may have strings attached. And in the case of Acre, it was set up with a donation、uh, of several million dollars from a number of、uh, mainland Chinese philanthropists. And、uh, the University of Technology Sydney, I don't think,、uh, was careful enough in working out the governance structure. Of that institute and keeping a close eye on the types of、uh, activities it was engaged in, and、uh, essentially, I've gone on the record as saying that it largely served as a kind of propaganda vehicle for mainland China and for the Chinese Communist Party.、Um, and I don't think those things,、uh, propaganda vehicles, belong inside our universities.、Uh, to take a bit of a step back,、um, Louise Edwards, you were the director of the predecessor of Acre, the China Research Centre, and were you surprised by the rise of Acre? I was surprised because、um, although I wasn't in Australia at that at the time when、uh, when Acre、um, emerged,、uh, I'd been told by my then former colleagues at、uh, the research, China Research Centre that it was closing, and they were being、uh, moved into other parts of the university. And then suddenly there was an, a new institute, so it was a bit of a surprise, and、um, and I was surprised that it wasn't an academic that was、uh, that was leading it, and that, that and that the agenda was no longer、uh, one that was. Directly oriented towards advancing scholarship and knowledge. So the man who's at the centre of this funding is this Chinese businessman called Huang Xiangmo, who funded not just this institute but another one at Western Sydney University. I mean, one of the things that struck me was really how high profile the opening of Acre was. The fact that 
there was the Chinese ambassador. It was actually opened by the foreign minister, Judy Bishop, and I think um, we actually have some sound of that opening. Ladies and gentlemen, this institute, by its very name, is designed to focus on our bilateral relations. And that's a very exciting prospect for me. Uh, I see relationships at the heart of Australia's foreign policy. Indeed, I see my role as foreign minister as Australia's relationship manager, as we deepen and broaden and diversify our connections and engagement, particularly in the Indian Ocean, Asia Pacific region. And I'm delighted to see so many business people here today, uh, particularly Mr Huang, and supporters of this university, supporters of the Australia-China Institute and supporters of the relationship. So it's very interesting that Julie Bishop actually name-checked Huang Xiangmo here. You spoke about problems with the governance. Can you just run us through what kind of problems you saw with that? When uh, ACRI was created in 2014, it uh, set up an advisory board um, and uh, Huang Xiangmo was named the chairman of the advisory board. Uh, beyond that, we don't know much about the governance structure. Uh, we do know that uh, that uh, Huang Xiaomo considered himself the chairman of ACRI and uh, he has uh, argued uh, or has stated in public that he selected the director of ACRI, uh, the former foreign minister, Bob Carr. Um, and clearly he played a very important role behind the scenes in uh, in directing the work uh, that ACRI was doing, both uh, its uh, its uh, academic work as well as um, some of the meetings uh, that it was involved hosting uh, senior Chinese Communist Party officials, uh, often behind closed doors. Now, why is that a concern? Mr. Huang is using UTS as a vehicle to advance uh, his own personal interests, but also the interest of the Chinese Communist Party uh, in its agenda uh, through its United Front uh, uh, organs. Um, and in my opinion, that doesn't belong inside a university. Universities are about um, you know, impartiality, uh, critical uh, research, uh, and also a kind of transparent and open uh, bureaucratic structure. And in the case of ACRI, uh, I don't think any of those things uh, apply uh, at least not fully. So the former foreign minister, Bob Carr, who's now the director of ACRI, has defended the institute very strongly. And he hit back against critics of the institute uh, when he was speaking on ABC's Radio National. It's come from people on the, the cold warrior fringe of Australian politics, people who are resentful. Any hint of Australia running a pragmatic national interest-based China policy. There are two standards being applied here, and you're more excited about ACRI, which receives some foundational funding from a Chinese property development company, than you are about a think tank that receives money from declared US armaments companies. James, in that clip, Bob Carr suggests that those who oppose this sort of support for centres uh, hold a Cold War mentality. Now, your accent is a touch Cold War, but uh, do you think that's a fair aspersion? No, I think it's very disingenuous to uh, suggest uh, 
that uh, you know simply because I'm asking and raising questions about the uh, institutional structure of ACRI and the, and the type of research it's doing that uh, somehow I'm anti-China. I think uh, he referred to myself and John Fitzgerald as vehemently anti-China, which is uh, completely not true. I'm here because I value the relationship that Australia has with China. I want to see a really robust, positive uh, relationship. I think uh, China's rise has done wonderful things for us here in Australia as well as others across the globe. We need to look at all aspects of the relationship, all aspects of China's rise, both the good and the bad. Um, and if we get into uh, name-calling, uh, that really kind of pulls us down a notch or two. Now, one of Bob Carr's defences for this is to compare his centre to the US Study Centre at the University of Sydney and pointing out that this centre receives funding from US weapons manufacturers and also receives funding directly from the American embassy. Why are they different? Well, I think there's two issues here of why they're different. One, we know uh, where the US Study Center receives its money because every year it, it issues an annual report as well as financial statements. So we have a very good understanding of where it gets its money. In the case of ACRI, there has been no disclosure of its finances. Uh, there is no issuing of a kind of annual report that details both its uh, public and uh, private uh, activities. I mean, you called it a propaganda vehicle, James Liebel, but what proof do we have of that? I don't think that we need to have proof. I think that anything within a university has to has to prove that it's impartial. And the lack of transparency is really a key thing that has come up in, in our conversation today, that we need to have transparency. We need to know who the influences are. And that's okay. You know, we just want to know. And I think we do know, if we read the Chinese media, that um, Huang Xiangmo has been using his position uh, at UTS as a professor, uh, as well as his role as uh, chairman of, um, of ACRI, to host um, senior Chinese Communist Party officials, often at closed-door meetings, uh, sometimes involving Australian government officials, but also other individuals from the Chinese Australian community. And so it's, for my, my concern is more about the backdoor dealings than uh, than than in the research that it conducts, as Louise said, it's you know the lack of transparency that uh, is most concerning to me. So, Paul, do you share these concerns with the kind of work that is going on at Acri? There's been a few research projects that have come up under the Acri umbrella. Um, Jane Orton um, has done some published work on Mandarin teaching in Australian schools, and that's uh, quite good research. The one project I was asked to be involved in was a. Uh, overview of Chinese-Australian history. Um, that's my field, Chinese-Australian um, history. And a number of scholars from my field were asked to contribute to this volume to represent a, an overview book that tells you the whole story of Chinese history in Australia. I was concerned with the way the chapter outlines were framed initially, that it was promoting a strong bilateral approach, the role of Chinese in Australia to over the historical period to their relationship with China. Uh, and it was fostering this sense of Chinese Australia are supporting the motherland in its development um, over the last two centuries. Chinese-Australian history is much broader than just the bilateral relationship. There are many Australian Chinese who've been here for generations who don't necessarily see themselves as related directly to the politics of China. And this this whole question of the, the bilateral focus of 
the Australia-China um, Relations Institute and also the new institute at the University of Western Sydney, the Australia-China Institute for Arts and Culture. The focus is on just Australia and China. It doesn't talk about uh, doesn't doesn't include more broad representations of Chineseness like Chinese Malayan, the Malayans of Chinese background, Singaporean Chinese, um, Chinese in America, Chinese in South America. There's a bit of a push from China to to say that all these people who have Chinese ancestry are all still part of the motherland and all should support what's going on in China. So you saw this book as something of a propaganda vehicle. Not so much a propaganda vehicle, but a, a, an attempt to frame the debate in terms of a narrowing focus towards what is the relationship of Chinese and Australia to the to the development of China in the modern world. It's only one. It's an important aspect of the story of Chinese in Australia, but it's not the only aspect. For me, the big question is why why does uh, someone want to have an, uh, a research institute or a, an ACRI-type uh, information exchange institute within a university? Why don't they set themselves up separately and be an independent uh, think tank? And we could have the Lowy Institute or the Australia Institute or the Centre for Independent Studies. These are all organisations that have clear political agendas or clear mission statements of what they want to achieve, but they don't seek to embed themselves within the university structure. And this is where it's different with the influence that we're seeing coming from, from the People's Republic of China. They're very keen to embed themselves within within a university structure. And the problem with that is that they, well, it seems to me that the reason they'd want to do that is to make use of the the brands of reliable information, respectable, uh, solid research, impartiality, some of the values that uh, James was talking about earlier. These are the things that organisations want to hook into, where they want to be associated with. So they want to get the benefit of being in a university, but the universities are not paying clear enough attention to the fact that they can be compromised by their proximity to organisations that don't have the same values of maintaining high levels of scholarship, rigorous interrogation of questions, um, and and a a commitment, even if it's not achieved, but a commitment to impartial dissemination of results. So I think that we, we should be asking, why do they need to be in a university? It would be quite acceptable for ACRI to exist outside of the university funded by uh, Mr Huang, and it would be a very welcome addition to the Australian public discourse and public scene. We would uh, feel no, no anxiety at all about that. I mean, one example of the type of research that we are seeing on the ACRI website is this poll, and it's a poll about the role that Australians think Australia should take. Should a conflict break out in the South China Sea of the people that they polled, 71% say Australia should remain neutral if conflict broke out between Japan and the US and China on the question of these disputed islands in the South China Sea. Now, James, you were looking at that poll before. Does it meet your standards, do you think, for impartial academic research? No, I think it uh, it clearly lacks rigor. You have no data on how the poll was conducted. You don't have any of the metadata. I think that's part of the problem. I mean, ACRI has done. uh, We had to do give give it some credit that it has uh, published reports by uh, serious academics that 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 is quite rigorous. But there are other parts of ACRI that are in the business of. really uh, creating very uh, soft kind of, you know, advocacy work that um, that I think is, is very different from the type of critical uh, academic research that we expect inside uh, universities. In fact, 
on their um, website, they're quite clear about this. Uh, they claim that they have a positive and optimistic view of the relationship between Australia and China. That's fine. As uh, Louise was saying, there's a space in, in Australia's society to, to have, a, uh, have that type of view put forward, but I don't think it belongs inside uh, our universities. Now, to put the question more broadly, why are universities providing this platform? How does the opportunity arise? Universities are being encouraged to go and seek external funding. They're encouraged to make their their borders between themselves and the community and industry and politics more porous. And so we're, we're encouraged to you know, escape the uh, ivory tower. And that has been a good thing in many, many respects, but it also means that we're we're unable to do many of the things that we need to be doing and that, that makes a university a university. The, the problem with seeking funding for your research centre or your institute is that the people who are likely to have the funding in the case of China research are usually people who have made a lot of money in China and they're not going to be wanting to jeopardise their opportunities for making further money in China by funding something that is going to have a negative impact on themselves. It's naive of us to think that the money doesn't come with strings attached. Even if they are just the smallest of strings, there are still strings, and that compromises the independence. It's potentially trashing the brand of Australian universities. I mean, Mr Huang's uh, participation in Australian political life has been under the microscope late, lately. Uh, there was... Of course, the case of the Labour senator, Sam Dastiari, who had to quit after accepting a donation from Huang Xiangmo. Huang Xiangmo himself wrote this editorial where he said that uh, Chinese need to uh, have a more efficient combination between their political requests and political donations. So he made it sound like he felt that Chinese donors needed to sort of do more to get results from their political donations. I mean, to what extent is that a matter of concern for you? I think this is a good point to unpack the term Chinese in this discussion because basically what we're talking about with Huang Shangmo is a person from the PRC, closely aligned with the PRC, even though he's still Australian, is now an Australian citizen. But there are many people who are of Chinese background who are not aligned with the PRC, people from Hong Kong, people from Taiwan, people from Singapore, people who are third-generation Australian, who can be regarded as Chinese because of their ethnicity, because of their language, because of their um, family background. And uh, you, you can't just lump everybody as being like Huang Shangmo. There are plenty of high-profile business people in Australia of Chinese ethnic background who don't support the values of the PRC uh, government and don't support the sort of activity that Huang Shangmo is apparently pushing. So uh, a lot of people I know who are involved in politics, uh, Australian Chinese, are concerned about this sort of influence because it tarnishes their reputation uh, as being um, people who are above, above reproach in terms of their political activity. So just to briefly play devil's advocate, I'm now sadly the veteran of no less than four uh, centres for the study of contemporary China. And uh, who knows, I may make it five one day. Um, but what I've observed in the boards of these centres is in the past, often they've been filled by white male baby boomers who were there purely to push their own business interests without putting up any of their own cash. 
in some ways, isn't UTS and Western Sydney University getting a much better deal out of someone like Huang Xiaomo? I think that's a really good point. And I think that they are getting a very good deal and that what is happening there is actually a product of this overall push within universities and I think within a lot of public institutions to be more porous, to open themselves up to the community and to business. So I think they are doing exactly what is what has been encouraged and we are seeing the results of that now. I don't think the Australian taxpayers want to see that happening though. I think Australian taxpayers want universities to be advancing Australia's interests. They want to see uh, research that is um, impartial. We need good information. We don't want compromised information so that we can, as a nation, make the best decisions. And, you know, the, the rise of China is is the big story, of course, of, of the last couple of decades. And uh, as you mentioned, it's got huge implications for us here in Australia. And what I think our universities need is a, a really kind of rigorous uh, set of institutions that are able to look at that uh, the rise of China and its implications uh, across the board to look at the positive outcomes of that as well as the negative. When you're talking about the darker sides of China's influence on higher education, I think one impact worth looking at is those who are studying areas deemed sensitive by the Chinese government. And James, your research is all about Xinjiang, the northwestern province of China, where there has been a separatist movement. Have you found difficulties in undertaking your research? Because I know there was a group of academics known as the Xinjiang 13 who put out a book about uh, Xinjiang and then were banned from China for many years. I mean, what about you? What kind of impact have you seen yeah, I mean, it's a very controversial uh, topic. It's uh, one that the Chinese Communist Party would rather have us uh, ignore or at least, or at least accept its view uh, of uh, Xinjiang and the Uyghur issue. Um, and researchers like myself uh, need funding, of course, to carry out our research. Uh, I've been lucky thus far to be able to apply for money and receive it from uh, from the Australian Academy of Social Sciences as well as my own university. Um, what my concern would be is if uh, the influence of the Chinese Communist Party uh, increases in our universities that there might come a day when I apply for some money and don't get it, uh, purely based on the fact that it's sensitive and seen as uh, perhaps uh, potentially offending uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, that would be very dangerous because we need academics who can look at all aspects uh, of China's rise, as I said, the good and the bad. I think that's a classic quote from Nelson Rockefeller, that the important thing isn't what uh, answers are given. The important thing is that you control which questions are asked. Has this been your experience at all, Paul? I think particularly when you talk about um, having an institute that focuses on culture and it's not being political, uh, that, that the framing of the discussion is not about politics, it's about culture, uh, Chinese culture, then what you decide as being the culture you're talking about can have a very strong effect on what people um, conceive of when they think about China. So much of the um, promotion overseas by the Chinese government is about promoting Chinese culture, the capital C, capital C, uh, but doesn't allow for enough representation of the diversity of that culture, even within the Han majority. So as you get this monoculture being produced for the outside consumption, outside China, of what China is, what Chinese culture is. And the Paul's point about the, the idea that you can separate politics from, from culture is complete anathema to anything that the Chinese Communist Party is, has held 
near and dear since it was its formation. They've never taken uh, never taken that view before. They've always used culture as one of their main political tools, and they've been very very successful at it. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party takes advertising and propaganda very seriously, and they know how to use it. And it's it's uh, it's disingenuous to, to 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 hear statements that there is no connection between politics and culture. There's another aspect to this in terms of the effect on academic quality in Australia. And it's not just to do with institutes like the ones we're talking about. It's more generally about the involvement of um, PRC-based academics in overseas uh, conferences and programs. Um, I've been two conferences in the last two years where a large cohort of the scholars presenting have been from the PRC. And some of those, the quality of their work is not great. And there is a reality in China that in, if you want to advance in academia, you don't advance necessarily because of the merit of your academic work. It may be about who you know, about how well you can represent the politics or how well you can represent avoiding politics and what you what you present. And so you get people who are um, not openly debating issues or not openly um academically discussing points because it's too uncomfortable for them to do that in China. But when they come to an overseas, uh, a conference overseas in Australia or in America or wherever, then they don't know how to present their debate academically and with rigour and they, they then bring down the quality of the conference that other people are attending and they can affect the, the perception of um, how good scholarship is in China. Many Australian universities are building partnerships with China universities with scholarly connections and you build up relationships of trust and reciprocity, which then can be compromised. If you have someone from that university who wants to come and give a talk in Australia, then you, you can't just say, oh, well, I don't think their work's up to scratch. You have to say, you have to think seriously about rejecting them because then you're affecting the relationship with, A, the university in China that you're working with and, and whatever state officials are involved in the relationship as well. I'm seeing that more and more compromising the work that I'm involved in. Yeah, and there's a fundamental gap of values here that I think is at the heart of the issue. The Chinese Communist Party uh, does not hold uh, the same values that I think the most Australian citizens do. And so we, we need to be uh, open about that and discuss that. And so when we do take money uh, from people uh, from mainland China, we're, we're essentially opening the door to a different set of values. Um, and, you know, sometimes values change and we have to negotiate that at all times. But we need to be wide-eyed about that, how we might be compromising some of our values. On that note, many thanks to our guests, James Liebold, Paul McGregor and Louise Edwards, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Graham Smith and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and you'll find show notes on Twitter to read more about the work of James, Paul and Louise. This episode was recorded in Horwood Studios at the University of Melbourne by Gavin Neighbour. Our theme is by Susie Wilkins and our cartoons and GIFs are courtesy of Seb Donter. Bye for now. Bye.